Acts chapter 15. I told you the ironicness of ministry. We're not going to be looking at Acts 15. We're going to be looking at Acts 14. Acts chapter 14. Acts 14. Hear the word of the Lord. It came to pass in Iconium that they went both together in the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were made aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent on his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Laconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people, which, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the seas and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood around about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra 
and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with them, or I'm sorry, and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they had believed. And after they had passed throughout Pisidia, they came to Paphlia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down unto Ataliah, and thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they were come and had to get gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that the God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And they and there they abode a long time with the disciples. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Will you pray with me, please? Gracious Father, Lord, we pause and quiet our hearts before your revelation to us in your word as we seek to consider the topic of our glorious mission as your church here on earth. And Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and that you would speak to us, Lord, as we consider uh, this most precious topic. We bless you and we thank and trust you will do these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Brethren, uh, my aim and my message uh, really is not so much to teach you anything that you don't already know. Um, rather, my aim really is to remind us and to encourage us in the scriptures of what our glorious mission is as the church of Jesus Christ here on earth. And uh, to be frank, a lot of times I like sitting in your position and, and listening and learning from men who often speak in this fellowship. The title of message is real simple. Our Glorious Mission. Our Glorious Mission. Now, obviously, I'm referring to the mission that we have as Christians. Uh, I'm referring to not only the mission we have as individual Christians, but also that mission in connection with how it ought to always be considered our mission gathered together as a local church consisting of individual Christians. So I'm referring to, and I'm coming into this message, addressing our united, commissioned, and purpose as Christ's church that is here on earth. This mission has not been given to any other earthly institution. In fact, we could go a step further and say this mission, our mission as Christ's church, it hasn't been entrusted to any other part of creation, whether physical or spiritual. We, the Church of Jesus Christ, have this mission. And so before we go any further, I think it's helpful to start off with the definition. What is the mission of the church? Let's, let's just get that down, that groundwork down initially. And it's here at the very beginning that we somewhat fall into what I would call a definitional dilemma when we're just wanting to define what is, with clarity, the mission of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who aren't aware of it, the very definition of the Church's mission has become, you could say, rather difficult to define in the modern day. In fact, one will strive in vain to find agreement among missiological theologians and practitioners of our day. 
We have, on the one hand, competing for our attention, the Reconstructionists, sometimes called Restorationists, and then on the other side, seeking to you know, clarify for us what the definition of the mission of the church on earth is, we have the old social gospel guard who are wearing the new clothing of social justice and Christian, quote unquote, I put that in brackets, Christian wokeness. Now, while these various groups would never want to be placed in the same sentence with one another, fundamentally, brethren, I believe that these various competing views of what the mission of the church is, is committing the same problem. When you carefully examine their arguments of what they're wanting to convince us the mission of the church fully is, you quickly realize that by overemphasizing certain legitimate, and I emphasize the word legitimate, by overemphasizing certain legitimate social and political concerns, the nature of the church's mission becomes distorted, it becomes muffled, it begins to become unbalanced, especially in the expression of what they encourage us to be involved with. And so brethren, it's against that background of these competing definitions of what is the mission of the church that I hope to reset for us in its proper light the glorious mission that we have been given. I want to do this in three ways. I want to first look at our glorious mission and its connection with what's called the Missio Dei, or the mission of God. And then secondly, look at that and consider the mission of God in its relationship to the nature of Jesus's mission and ministry on earth. And then lastly, come back to Acts 14, not Acts 15, come back to Acts 14 and look at and understand our glorious mission and the pattern and the example we find in the apostles. So let's begin with understanding our glorious mission in connection with the Missio Dei. Some of you may already know this. Missio Dei is just a, a Latin theological term that means the mission of God, or how embarrassing, not for <laughs> We were at breakfast, and oh, wow. And I got a case, of course, that you can't open up. Um, get back on track here. Um, uh, some, you know, some of you may know this term. It, it, it simply means the, the mission of God or the sending of God, the missio Dei. And what's interesting is that before the 16th century, a lot of times when the church fathers would talk about uh, the mission of God or the sending of, of God, it was never in connection with how we use the word mission or sending. It was never per se connected with evangelism. But it was always connected with the work of the Trinity. Uh, when theologians uh, before the 16th century would talk about the sending of God, they would talk about the sending of the Son from the Father. They would speak about the sending of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. And all of it was connected with the Missio Dei, the grand purpose, the grand mission of God and what they were being sent forth for. So it's no surprise to us that when we read some of the earliest expressions of theology from the church, we pick up this paradigm as if it were of the Missio Dei, the mission of God, the sending of God of the Son, and the Spirit being sent from the Father and the Son. I'll quote for you an example the Nicene Creed, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It begins saying, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. 
and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all the worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And as we continue on, you're going to hear the Missio Dei come out. Who for us, men, and for our salvation, came down from heaven. There's that sending idea. And was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and he was bruised. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. Here it is again. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. So whatever you think about the Missio Dei, uh, there are some who don't like the paradigm. There are some who have, you could say, recasted in different language and new definitions. But, but I believe it's helpful. I believe it's a theological concept that helps us capture this idea that at the center of the Missio Dei is Christ. It's the work of Christ. And so that helps us as we move forward wanting to get a clear definition and maintain proper balance in our understanding of mission as the church. Now, when the early church fathers would cite this mission of Christ, they would go to various scriptures, but one of their favorites, and it shouldn't be a surprise to us, is John 17. It, for it's in John 17, brethren, we, we do, don't we have this sort of uh, back room uh, uh, view of the conversation between the Son and the Father about the eternal Missio Dei, the eternal mission, the eternal purpose of all of what God wants to accomplish. We read beginning in verse 1, Jesus saying to His Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Thy Son, and Thy Son also may glorify Thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, and now you're getting a glimpse here of his mission. You're getting a glimpse, as if it were, of his overarching purpose of the Missio Dei. He says, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The centrality of Christ and his mission in the Missio Dei, brethren, we must fully absorb it, understand it, accept it, meditate upon it, and never forget it, for it keeps us anchored properly on our mission as the church. Andreas Kostenberger and Peter O'Brien in their book entitled To the Ends of the Earth, A Biblical Theology of Mission, they further stress this point when they say this, we will not rightly understand the mission of the church without the conviction that the sending of Jesus by the Father is still the essential mission. Essential, of course, is still the fundamental principle. It is still that underlining essential ingredient if we're to understand properly, maintain with clarity our mission as the church. What was Jesus' mission? This moves us then, secondly, into considering the nature of Jesus' mission. The nature of His working out God's Missio Dei. Now, of course, when we're speaking of the nature of Jesus' mission, it goes without saying, especially to a group such as this, that His grand, ultimate purpose and mission was to do what? To do what only uniquely He could do as the divine Messiah. 
And so it goes without saying that uniquely important and primary to his mission, mission was the penal substitutionary and the propitiatory death that he, that he died in order that sinners could be forgiven. Matthew 1.21, Mark 10.45. But for our purposes today in this message, I want us to focus on the nature of Jesus' mission while he was on earth living out the Missio Dei in order for us to understand what was he doing leading up to the atoning cross work. Well, when we read our New Testaments, we discover, don't we, that primarily Jesus' mission and ministry on earth encompassed two things. The first was obviously healing lame and sick bodies, but not that alone. It was healing and it was setting free captive ruined, condemned souls. It was a holistic ministry, not only to individual bodies that are lame and crippled, but also to souls that needed to be liberated and forgiven and freed. It was holistic. But amid this holistic ministry and mission of Jesus Christ being lived out on earth, we see that preaching was his top priority. We've established that Christ was at the center of the Missio Dei of God. And now we come to understand Christ's ministry on earth, executing that mission and coming to the cross. What you could primarily say exemplified his ministry was his teaching and his preaching. In fact, from Mark 1, 38 through 39, we understand that preaching is why he came out into public ministry and went from town to town. Our Lord tells us in Luke 4, 18-19, quoting Isaiah 61, the purpose of this Spirit-anointed preaching as He's executing the mission that He had been sent on. What was the purpose? He says there, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me, what, in this mission? To preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recover uh, the recovering of sight to the blind and to set liberty them that are bruised. There's no theologians that disagree that the mission of Christ, the proclamation of His gospel, was to bring spiritual liberty, to bring salvation to the souls of men who were bound up in the shackles of sin and despair. When we move forward in the New Testament in Jesus' preaching ministry, we find from his other recorded sermons that fundamentally that what was at the bottom of his preaching to do this, to set the captives free in the spiritual sense, was a call to repentance and faith. We read in Mark 1.15 where he says, In his preaching, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Going on in his preaching ministry, Mark 2.17, I came not, Jesus declares, to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Brethren, don't you think that it's noteworthy that while Jesus did indeed attend oftentimes to the physical need of people around him, there is not a single example in the Bible where Jesus went into a town for the sole purpose of healing or casting out demons. It was always accompanied with this missional message. Repent and believe. Flee the wrath of God and have eternal life in me. 
In other words, the Son of Man being sent by the Father in the Missio Dei, He never ventured out on a healing exorcism tour. He never ventured out away from the mission on a political rally. He never got called up in a cultural protest. But rather, His stated purpose, as He said in Luke 19.10, was that the Son of Man has come to seek that and to save that which is lost. And so as we stand back and we're examining the Missio Dei lived out in the mission and the nature of Christ's ministry, what was He preaching? He was preaching salvation, wasn't he? Brother in the New Testament definitively reveals to us that Jesus' public ministry, that is his activity in his mission, which we've already established at the core of the Missio Dei, was the redemption and the eternal life of sinful men, which could only come through faith in him and bring glory to God the Father. With that said and noticed, it is no wonder to us that in every single gospel, including the book of Acts, that this mission of Christ is passed on in what we call the Great Commission. There's in every gospel, in the book of Acts, some sort of rehearsal or reiteration of this glorious mission of Christ to preach this good news. I think he's trying to tell us something about our mission, don't you? We all know Matthew 8, 28, 16. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But we read also in Mark's account, 13, 10, the gospel must be first published among all nations, proclaimed, preached, taught. Luke 24, 46 through 47. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and, one, and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance... For the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Time doesn't permit us to look at the upper room uh, account in John 20. But in verse, 9, uh, verse 21 we read where Jesus tells them, to, He encouraged them, he, he is stressing to them, I want you to continue on this same mission that I've exemplified for you. He says, as my Father has sent me, even so now, I send you. We, well, we've seen how the Father sent him. We understand what his message was when the Father sent him. And we read in John 20, 21, that he sends us as well. We could look at the Ascension account in Acts, where we see that he basically gives them a reiteration of the Great Commission. You, go out to all the world and take this message. Brothers, it's from these passages, and others like them, that our desire to clearly define and maintain the mission of the church, I believe, takes a more authoritative and structural framework. From all of this, it appears that the glorious mission that's given to the early church was not one of cultural or political transformation, even though, according to God's will, it does appear that when the church is faithful to her primary mission, that oftentimes in communities and societies, those things would take place. But rather their mission, our mission, was unquestionably and fundamentally a mission of gospel proclamation. And that's exactly what we see in the early church. Having to understand the Missio Dei and secondly, understanding Christ's example of living out his mission at the core of the Missio Dei, handing off, as if it were, that mission to the early Christians. Thirdly, we come to the book of Acts. 
this wonderful historical account of the very first Christians living out what they understood to be their mission given to them by Christ. Now we could go to many places in the book of Acts. You know this. I think that Acts 14 is particularly helpful. Uh, I'm going to draw your attention in a moment specifically to what I would call a threefold description of the glorious mission in verses 21 through 23. But it's important for us to understand, we go back a little bit to Acts 13, and we know that there from verse number two, that the church of Antioch, they set apart Paul and Barnabas, didn't they? For the work, it says there, to which God had called them unto. Now, while this won't be the first time that the gospel we see in the book of Acts is being preached to non-believers, nor is it the first time that Paul or Barnabas are endeavoring to do some sort of gospel work. It is the first time that we see the church setting out some Christian workers to go fulfill what they understood their glorious mission was to a different region. So that's what we have in Acts 14. Makes it a little unique for our purposes today. So after they travel through in chapter 13, uh, Cyprus and areas around that, they come down here to chapter 14 and we see the events that unfold. What are they doing? Well, they're preaching the message of the gospel, aren't they? And it's not being well received in, in, in several places. It's not totally void of new converts. We see that. But there was a lot of strife and a lot of people raising up against them. And we get down here to verses 21 and 23 after this tremendous courage that's displayed by Paul and Barnabas. After what many of us would have endured and said, you know what, I don't know if I can take it anymore. Uh, we see this wonderful account of what they show was their priorities. It's a three-pointed priority, a succinct description, I would say. A PowerPoint presentation, you could say. It's if they were here today showing us what is your glorious mission of the church. Well, this is what we thought our glorious mission was. Look at verse 21, priority number one. New converts, making disciples through the preaching of the gospel. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Their number one priority I'm seeing here is that, what, to proclaim the gospel? They were going to make disciples. In my reading of a lot of the missiology books and things like that, we begin to uh, quibble and talk past one another about definitions of what is a disciple. But we all would agree with this, brothers. That fundamentally, a disciple is someone who has been supernaturally born again. They have received the gospel. God has enabled them to believe. And now they are set apart as a disciple from all the men of the earth, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so we see here that in working out their glorious mission given to them by Christ, that that, that preaching the gospel, the conversion of lost souls, teaching them the fundamentals of the faith, raising them up in doctrine, giving them, you could say, the meat uh, to help them themselves go out and proclaim the gospel. That was the first priority of the early church, living out the glorious mission. But that's not all. For anyone in here who's in the ministry, you know this really consumes most of your time. Look at what verse 22 tells us was their second priority. Confirming the souls of the disciples. Mm. And exhorting them, what? To continue in the faith. Brothers and sisters in your church, you know the work that's involved here. 
this priority of nurturing the disciples, the converts. It's not all about proper theology and great expositional preaching. It is indeed that. But there's another priority and emphasis of walking alongside one another so that we all make it to the end of the race. Right now I'm preaching through the book of Hebrews and the main thrust and the theme of that entire epistle is not that you and you alone make it to the end of the race, but that you with your fellow brothers and sisters all cross the finish line. That was one of the top priorities of the mission of the New Testament church. To horizontally encourage, nurture, keep going. I know it's hard. Through much tribulation, we will enter the kingdom of God. But look thirdly at the priority they had of strengthening and establishing the local churches. Verse 23, And when they had ordained them elders, they weren't going to leave until the the church was set in proper order, that it was established for the welfare of continuing on, and that they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting. They commended them all to the Lord on whom they had believed. Evangelism, discipleship, church planting, That's what the church in Antioch understood their mission from Christ to be, and that's what they sent Paul and Barnabas out to do. The goal of their mission work, brothers, is clear. It is to win souls, then establish these young disciples in the doctrine of the faith, and finally incorporate them into the local church. So then, my conclusion on that point of looking at the book of Acts is this, very simply. If we all in here, and I hope we all would, agree that the apostles are meant to be our primary model for understanding our mission of this church, then we should expect our churches. We should expect this fellowship of churches. We should expect any association of churches to be most known for this type of activity above all other things that we may be known for. Amen? When others look at our churches... When they look at our fellowship of churches, our association churches, what do they hear? What message do they hear the most of? This activity or other activity? Brothers, let it be this. Let us most be known for this. Let us be known at being the experts, the most resourceful, the most diligent, the most creative in all of these priorities that we see outlined for us by the early church. And as I'm inching closer to the end of this message, can I just tell you, for any of you who are fully absorbing this and really letting it sink in and really wanting to do it to the God's glory, to the best of your ability, you know that this is no small task. This is not a small task at all. Two years ago, uh, the Lord's providence opened up a door for us, a missionary opportunity in India. And as we began to look at it and learn more how in India in the second most spoken language in India, the Telugu language, those pastors over there have no systematic theology in their own language. They have no lexicons. They have no commentaries. They have no little books, you know, that are published here that we get that help encourage us in uh, specific doctrines of the faith. They have none of that. And so, of course, here, again, we, we look at this task, and this is monumental. Uh, We have got to get these native pastors resources that we in the West, we take advantage and our church are so edified by them and they help us to prepare to feed the flock, so forth and so on. And so you start getting into that and it's a daunting task. 
We have to be creative. We have to be resourceful and, and, or, and, and coordinate with other people. And, you know, by God's grace and by God's help, we've actually published the first chapter in Telugu of a systematic theology, the first reformed systematic theology in, the, in, in, in human history that has ever been printed in Telugu. And, you know, India is soon to surpass China as the most populated country in the world. And I don't know if you know this, but in India, there are more Muslims than all the Muslims combined in the Arab states. Brothers, God's opened up a door for us in India. What are we going to be known for in this season of opportunity? To take the gospel. And not only the gospel, but rich theological you know, goods and, and books that we can take there to them. I'm stressing this because, to be honest with you as a pastor, someone who, by God's grace, is faithfully trying to live out this threefold description I see in the, the Bible in connection with the Missio Day and connection with the mission of Christ in my own life and in the life of my church, I'm somewhat concerned that in recent years, shall we say, the church has been encouraged to take a more expansive view of the mission. This recasting or redefining the Missy Day kind of sounds like this. And maybe this is language that some of you are entertaining. Maybe it's some of the language that you're familiar with and you're kind of on the fence of, is this really the mission of the church? But it sounds like this as one author puts it. The mission of the church is being called and sent out to represent the reign and dominion of God upon all the earth. Another author puts it this way. The mission of the church is to partner with God as his sons and his daughters, as God establishes dominion and brings his reign and rule to bear on all the peoples and the places of earth. Or lastly, uh, from Michael Foster, published by Canon Press, he says, whatever your plan is, however your mission looks, it will fundamentally be oriented at developing, equipping, and multiplying yourself to extend God's rule into all the earth. Now, this newer model of the mission, broad mission of the church here, it seems attractive, but brothers, it has a problem. It has several problems. For one, I would contend, whether it intends to or not, to underemphasize the Great Commission or the means by which, the power by which the gospel has in transforming people, families, communities, and lives. It somewhat underestimates that. But also it, it, it underemphasizes the central mission of the Son and His work and what we just looked at. And it definitely overextends our role in God's cosmic mission. What do I mean by cosmic mission? Well, this is the end-all game. God's cosmic mission in the Missio Day, as Revelation teaches us, is to create a new heaven and a new earth. That cosmic mission can never be separated from fiery judgment. And isn't it telling that while we are never commissioned to partner with God in His cosmic mission of renewing the new heavens and the new earth and fiery judgment, we are commissioned to do what? Point as witnesses and ambassadors to the God who will do all of those things. We are commissioned to point people who are condemned to die in the trespasses of their sins to a way of escape from all of that fiery judgment. We are commissioned to do that. Besides these obvious problems that I just noted with this newer model, 
Its biggest challenge is that it has a hard time accounting for the pattern of our mission in the earliest days of the church, especially as we've seen from the book of Acts. So let me just share one closing thought with you. Brethren, pastors, keep the main thing the main thing. As is true with almost every Christian doctrine, so it's true with the mission of the church. There's ditches on either side of the road when we try to define it clearly and concisely from the Bible. On the one hand, we certainly want to avoid making the mission of the church too small. And how does that look? I believe the way that looks is we become lethargic, we become apathetic to the pattern and the calling we've just learned about in the book of Acts. Are we really doing that with all of our ability and our strength? Because it's no small task. When we make the mission of the church too small, you begin to see that flame kind of fizzle out and the activity of our churches really isn't known for that. But on the other hand, we want to avoid the danger of making our mission too broad. There are some very well-meaning, genuine Christians that act like everything counts as God's missio day and His dominion mandate. That's simply not the case, brothers and sisters. And, and without denigrating the good work that we as salt and light, Christ's salt and light in this world, we do do, we're called to do, we must conclude that from Acts 14 and from the New Testament, more broadly speaking, that Scripture provides us with a very clear, a very concise definition of what our mission is. And this is what I'm going to end with and hopefully re-encourage you with as you go back to your places of worship tomorrow and you ask God to help us all do together. And here's the definition. What is our glorious mission of the church? To go out into the world, make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit, gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey His commands. Now and into eternity to the glory of God our Father. Thank you. Did you want to do questions and answers now or?